Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Tucker, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, not that you really need an introduction, but, uh, you know, I've known about your work for many, many years, uh, long before I ever started doing any work on the web myself. Uh, and I've come across you by way of numerous people who are, are mutual friends of ours. I've even had the good fortune of sitting down with dinner for you. Uh, so on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your, your journey, your story, your background, and how that has brought you to where you're at in the world today and what you're up to today? <laughs> Uh, I, where do I start, dude? I mean, like I, I could tell, you know, I could say a lot of things, you know, like how far back do you want me to go? Where do you want me to begin? I would like to go as far back as your childhood. <laughs> okay. What about my childhood? Um, well, I mean, tell me, I mean, wh what led you to doing the kind of work that you do I and mean, what kinds of influence did you have as a child? Uh, you know, what was it like and what were your interests that led you to doing this kind of creative work? So by that, you mean writing? Yeah. Okay. So uh, honestly, it was, um, th the real honest answer is that it was kind of uh, a mistake. It was, it, it was an accident that I seized upon and, and, and turned into an opportunity that became sort of who I am. Right. So mm -hmm. basically when I was in law school, uh, my friends and I would all go, uh, after, after we graduated law school, we all, you know, there was about eight of us and we were best friends and we would go out drinking together like four or five nights a week and and you know we kind of like all lived together and it was almost like a little mini fraternity and after we um we left law school we all went to different cities to work and so um you know we we had an email thread there was like the this is sort of 2001 ish 2001 a little bit early 2002 kind of before um before uh, like message boards or Facebook or Twitter or any of that stuff. And so the way we kept in contact was email. And, uh, and the eight of us would just go back and forth, uh, making fun of each other, talking about all the things we did, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, um, you know, all the things we used to do in person. And, uh, and so I would um, – uh, I lived in South Florida. And South Florida is one of the worst places on earth to live because <laughs> it, is, it is so – intellectually and culturally bankrupt there's uh -huh. like if you're into um like drugs and you're into clubs and you're into like just working out and buying expensive clothes and nothing else then south florida is amazing but if you have uh two brain cells to rub together for, you know to have a thought you really kind of hate south florida and i really hated it so uh, i spent a lot of my time 
like wallowing in alcohol and women and then writing, doing ridiculous things and writing about it. And it turns out my friends thought my emails were really, really funny. And they started emailing or forwarding my emails about all the ridiculous things I was doing to, to like their friends or people they worked with. And they started getting around and becoming really, really popular. Uh, and this is, you know, this is back when people used email forwards uh, as sort of a means of communication. And so um, uh, it just kind of blew up. And uh, I, I ended up, I was working for my dad at the time. He owns a restaurant company. And my dad fired me from the family business. Um, and this is, <laughs> this is yeah, I, I know. This is after I had been fired as a lawyer. So uh, I got fired three weeks into my first uh, legal job, and then my dad fired me from the family business. And so one of my buddies from law school calls me up, and he's like, look, clearly you're not well-equipped to work in the two things you've trained for, which is our law and business. But he's like, dude, these emails that you're writing are the funniest things that I've ever read in my life, and this is what you need to do. And so this is uh, 2002, I think, mm-hmm. mid-2002. And so at that time, even 2002, uh, you know, self-publishing did not exist really. Um, and, and, and so I sent my stories uh, to every single publisher uh, that had a mailing address uh, because most of them didn't have email at the time. Same with agents. Uh, I, every single agent and every single publisher that had a mailing address, I sent you know, 500 or 1,000 query letters. And I got – and when I say precisely, I mean precisely zero positive interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one wanted to publish my stuff. And in fact, you know, 90% of the people ignored it. You know, 9% whatever uh, sent, you know, just standard rejection letters. And, uh, and maybe not 1%, but there were like a, maybe about five people who actually took the time to write personalized rejection letters <laughs> that were like, this is the worst thing I've ever read. You, you, not only are you not a writer, you should stop writing altogether and do something like that doesn't involve words. Uh, this is the, you know, like this is, this is awful and the least funny thing and blah, 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 whatever. Like, like a personalized rejection letter, right? Trolling, like taken to the extreme. So, uh, at that point, I knew my stuff was, was really good, not because I necessarily had a great eye for talent at the time, but because, I had seen my emails get forwarded around the, the country and really around the world, uh, you know, if you count Australia and, and, and the English-speaking world, England, etc. So I knew people thought my stuff was funny. So I was like, what the hell with these people? So mm-hmm. since it was 2002, I really only had one option. Uh, I, I had to put my stories up on the internet uh, for free and see if I could get any attention. And so I learned, this is like when GeoCities was just uh, like kind of getting moving and stuff. And so I, I didn't like any of those sites, so I kind of learned how to program HTML, and I put up a site that essentially looked like, it's funny, everyone made fun of how crappy my site was. My site at the time looks like what Tumblr looks like now. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, none of the back end, of course, but like uh, I, it, it was just totally plain, basically all text, had my stories, and then the stories blew up. Um, they, they, they blew up mainly because MTV came and filmed a documentary about not, it, was, it wasn't just about me, it was about uh, dating on the internet. Mm-hmm. And they filmed like these two uh, uh, creepy weirdos and then me. And, uh, and, and it was like a, a pretty funny thing. And I got these girls, like I got all these, all these girls were going out with me and were doing all this crazy stuff because I had like a, a date application sort of thing along with my stories. And after that, all those publishers who rejected me came back and wanted to do a book. 
So uh, long, long, long story short, I ended up doing a book. That book became I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. And the, the, the five stories that every publisher rejected, saying that they were the worst things they've ever heard, mm-hmm. ended up uh, becoming the cornerstone of a book that has now sold over 2 million copies worldwide. Wow. All right. So a lot of stuff here. Uh, you know, I, I want to go back to the beginning of this. One of the things that you mentioned was this idea of, you know, sort of accidentally falling into this and, you know, seizing opportunity. And to me, I think that there are certain people who have this capacity to recognize when those opportunities arise in their lives. And I'm wondering uh, about two things. One, do you think that's something that we can cultivate? And how do we recognize when those opportunities show up in our lives and actually do something with them? Uh, yes, it is absolutely something you can cultivate. Uh, but l- let me first start off saying that I I absolutely got butt-ass lucky. Uh, almost everything I did at the beginning was luck. Um, I, I, I put a lot of hard work in, but it was luck. And, and in fact, I think I've probably in my life missed more opportunities than I've taken because I'm fucking stupid in a <laughs> lot of ways. <laughs> Seriously. Like I really have. Like I – I should be worth $50 million right now and I'm worth like 10% of that because I have been so stupid about so many opportunities that have come to me. Uh, and I'm starting to, 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 I'm starting to turn that around because of what the question you just asked um, because the answer is yes. Yes, you can absolutely cultivate that and I've finally learned how to cultivate that as opposed to I think I got lucky the first time. I, I combined a little bit of talent with a lot of hard work and a ton of luck. And then what I did was, for the next 10 years, I essentially, um, the, the hard truth is I think I just kept trying to replicate what I'd done first, which is not the way that you create success. You never create success by keeping, by doing what you did that, that was successful last time. You create success by figuring out how to combine uh, essentially what, where the, the need is and how you can meet that need, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I stumbled into that. Like, wh- basically, I was the everyone. I was the first guy to write about sex and dating and relationships in a certain period in an honest way. Mm-hmm. And everyone was doing what I did. If you go read my books, uh, most people will be like, "Oh yeah, I did this, or I know this guy, or I know people like this." This guy just wrote down what everyone in their 20s was doing. And that's it. Like I, I just happened to be the first one to do it. And I happened to be the guy who did it really well. And I worked hard at it, et cetera. Um, and so I, like what that did, because I got, I got it right once, I, I was convinced that I was a fucking genius and I could do no wrong, which of course is fucking ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because even if you are a genius, you're going to screw up a lot. And, and, and so, and I wasn't a genius and still not. So I'm going to screw up even more than a genius. And so I thought like that doing, I thought it was me that was doing stuff right. What I've learned in the last 15 years, really the last five years is that the only way to, to sort of cultivate and replicate, uh, success is you need to figure out wh- where is the need? What do people need, whether they understand it or not, you know, what problems do they have? Really frame it as a problem. What problems do people, real problems that people have in real life with their real lives? And how can, can you figure out a way to solve those problems? 
And the easiest way to do it is if it's yourself. Mm-hmm. The, it, the hardest thing to do is to solve a problem that you don't have for a group that you're not a part of. The easiest way is to solve your own problem um, specifically because you're it's a real problem you have and you're part of the group that you're in, obviously, right? Um, and, and, but if you can do any of those, then essentially all you need to do at that point is then sell your solution to other people, whether you're selling your time or you create a product or a service or a process. That's how you can um, replicate success. And if you think writing is different, you're just living with your head in a fucking in, in the clouds. Because <laughs> uh, even entertainment writing solves problems. You know, like uh, it, it's it, you don't want to think of it specifically as as entrepreneurship, but but it's more like traditional entrepreneurship and traditional even nonfiction writing that, that most people are willing willing to to admit. But the point is, yes, it's absolutely replicable, and and um, and, and I I don't think I have the keys to the kingdom, but I think if you use that process, mm-hmm. which is that, I mean, this is a basic entrepreneurial process. Like anyone who understands this process knows it. They'll tell you that that's what they do. You know, it's interesting because as I hear you say that, I think about how easy it is to get comfortable with success. And and usually when we get comfortable is when we get our ass handed to us. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Because what happens is you think, <coughs> dude, I've done, <coughs> excuse me, I've made all these mistakes. Um, it's not comfortable necessarily. Comfort is the enemy of ambition and hard work. But what I was talking more about was um, – when you think that you are a genius or that you're always right or that your shit doesn't stink, then you stop learning. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that all humans, even the smartest humans of all time, whoever you think that is, we, have, we live in a world of infinite ignorance. And what we know is very small and very tiny and is usually temporary. Like most facts are temporary. It's funny. You say that and people are like, what are you talking about? Facts aren't temporary. Okay, really? Think about it like this. In, in 1780, the smartest people on earth, everything the smartest people on earth thought, we now think is wrong. So in 1780, uh, pick, pick your favorite person, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. So Thomas Jefferson thought slavery was okay. He thought, um, you know, I mean, go down the list. Almost every social, economic, scientific thing that Thomas Jefferson thought was wrong. Seriously. And he was legitimately one of the smartest, uh, most influential people on earth at the time. Mm-hmm. Facts have ha- half-lives. And if you don't understand that, then you are going to get left behind. Because the moment that you succeed for most people is the moment that they stop learning. Because they think the success is about them. And that they're right, and that they can just stop where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I went through that period, and uh, and I I missed a bunch of opportunities, and I uh, either failed or I didn't succeed as much as I should have. And I kind of learned that lesson the hard way. And and now I think I've turned it around a little bit, but I don't know. Well, I guess we'll see. Time, time is the uh, is the ultimate uh, sort of judge. You know, it's interesting. Uh, as you say that, I'm thinking about a passage from Seth Godin's Icarus Deception uh, that I remember reading. He said, you know, uh, the goal of the artist isn't to, to necessarily succeed, but it's to basically stay in the game and to keep playing and making more art. And he said, and when you succeed, the real reward is that you get to keep doing what you've been able to do. Yeah. Um, my editor told me a, a sim- very similar quote. Uh, it's uh, the, the 
the, um, the benefit of success is the conditional opportunity to try again. Hmm. Like that's what success earns you the conditional opportunity to prove yourself again. Actually, that's the, well, that's a different way to say it, say the same thing. And that's really all it is, man. Like the fact that that I I wrote one great book doesn't mean my fifth book is going to be worth worth anything. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So let me ask you this. You know, one of the things that you said was that you're in this period where you're kind of wallowing in your misery and wallowing in the alcohol and women, and you took an experience that wasn't in your mind necessarily positive and you turned it into one that was an opportunity. And, you know, I mean, I think people often find themselves in places in life that they don't want to be. And usually that's the catalyst for massive change. And I'm really curious uh, how you cultivate a mindset that enables that. Um, that's a good question. Uh, there's a lot of different answers to that. Um, <clears throat> I mean, look, I could... I can give you the review of the psychological literature. Like we can talk about Carol Dweck's research and we can talk about all that, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but honestly, I think it boils down to, uh, it boils down to really one thing and it's just, do you, do you believe that you can, uh, do something with your life or do you not? You know, and I don't believe in fake it till you make it. Mm -hmm. Fake it till you make it actually doesn't really work. The the what I'm not talking about fake it till you make it. Really, all fake it till you make it does is actually usually leads more to to failure than success. I'm talking about um, when you're sitting there in a situation. Let's say, and I, I bet a lot of your listeners are like that. You're in a a really crappy uh, apartment and have a crappy job. And you don't like any of it and you want uh, to be doing something better, right? Or you want to be in a better place. Then the question becomes, Do I, am I willing to put in the work it's going to take to get there? And most people say they are, but they actually aren't. It's, it's, a, the, it's the Mark Cuban saying, everyone wants to be a star, but no one wants to put in the work, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, it really is a matter of, <clears throat> am I going to wake up every day and develop uh, one skill or two skills or three skills or a set of skills and then I'm, am I going to put in the work to develop those skills and then am I going to put in the work to uh, create sort of something off of those skills, whether it's web design or programming or writing or any sort of creative endeavor, am I going to put that work in? And most people just aren't, they're not going to do it. They just, they it's so easy to not do it and it's it's they just don't take that path you know mm -hmm. i mean i i wish there was another answer man i wish there was some hack mm -hmm. to this or some like oh all you have to do is change this setting or no it just doesn't work that way yeah i wish it did man i battle with this every that that's actually the dirty secret of most successful creatives that i think most of them don't talk about which is why things like the war of art by stephen pressfield are so popular is even super successful creatives still battle every single day with that urge to get up and do nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, and the the people who succeed are the ones who fight and beat that urge, and the people who don't are the ones who don't. Yeah. Let me ask you this: You think that's something that is inherently built into certain people and not part of others? Um, there's there's a big debate about this about how. 
how in, in the psychological research, people like Roy Baumeister, uh, people like that have done a lot of research, how, how much of willpower is genetic versus not. Uh, what the research has found is that intelligence tends to be very genetic, right? How smart you are is um, highly, highly determined by uh, your parents' genes. But how much determination and willpower and grit you have is actually not super heritable. That it's it's far more influenceable by um, the environment you're in and the decisions you make. So yes, I, I, like not only do I believe you can change that, the research pretty clearly indicates that um, it's not difficult to do, and most the vast majority of people are capable of greatly increasing their willpower and their conscientiousness and their hard work. Uh, it's just a matter of doing the right things. Hmm. Well, what, well I, I actually want to talk about what those things are, uh, but I want to ask you another question. I think that'll tie into that next one. You know, you mentioned hundreds of personal rejection letters, uh, and then you also mentioned the fact that it's been 10 years of work. I mean, that's grit. Uh, and I don't think most people think about, you know, what has gone into where you're at. So, I guess the question is one, how did you psychologically navigate all of that rejection? Uh, and let's say that you don't have hundreds yeah. of people reading your stuff and your stuff's getting passed around the world. How can you overcome, you know, taking that rejection personally? And I mean, 10 years, like, was this one of those things you said, you know what, I'm in this until the end? Uh, you know, honestly, I think my example is not a good one. Uh, <laughs> I, no, for real, because my example is not the example to follow for most people. I, I took I made I took a very hard path and eighty percent of the reason of that uh, is because I made the path harder for myself. Um, so look, here's the thing: uh, you need to let, let's talk about rejection. I think that's the easiest place to put this. Uh, you need to look at um, who is rejecting you and for what reason, not rejection overall. Because the reality is, here, here's the thing. I deal with a lot of writers on a day-to-day basis, whether it's helping them with marketing or helping them with their books or whatever. And most people who are writing stuff are not writing stuff that's very good. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a reality. And so if you, aren't, if you aren't getting any traction or any readers with anything you're writing, then you need to start looking at what you're writing. And you need to ask yourself the question that we, that we talked about early on. Is does this writing matter to anyone else, right? Mm-hmm. Is this solving a, everything comes back to whether any sort of entrepreneur or creative, everything comes back to what problem are you solving? And for most people, when they write something, uh, they are solving a problem for themselves and not for other people. And that is why their writing gets no attention or gets rejected, right? Mm-hmm. When I say it's not very good, I'm not making a judgment on the sentences I'm not even necessarily making a judgment on the ideas in the writing. I'm making a judgment on whether the writing matters to anyone else because that is the fucking point of writing. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't understand this. It, if you want to write for yourself, that's awesome and totally valid and you should do that and it's called a diary. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't even think about rejection or worry about acceptance because it's for yourself. If you are not writing for yourself – then you need to understand you are writing for an audience. There are no other options, right? Um, and if you are writing for an audience, 
then you need to judge your work based on whether it is relevant to the audience you are trying to reach. Does it provide value to them or not? And if, it, if they don't like it, if they, don't, if they don't read it, if they don't recommend it, that means it's not. Whether you think it should be or not, whether you think it's good or not doesn't really matter. What matters is what your audience thinks. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it is absolutely that simple. Now, of course, you can write something that is very popular that is also very meaningful to you. That's the ideal situation. That's awesome. That's what I did. That's what um, most really good writers do. Uh, but that's <clears> – you have to be very careful understanding that like both of those – those two um, – uh, goals can, can often conflict, right? Mm-hmm. And so here's, here's the thing with rejection. Most people take rejection personally because they see their art. I, I'm talking in terms of writing because that's what I do, but you can just apply this to any sort of creative output. It doesn't have to be writing. Um, uh, most people see their work as a, as a piece of their identity, as who they are, right? So like, like – in my example, if someone was like, oh, I think uh, Assholes Finished First, which is my second book, I think that's a terrible book. So um, I, can, I can see that two ways. I can say, oh, that person is making a judgment of me, and so now I'm going to feel shitty or this is a shitty thing for me, right? Or I can say that's this person's opinion that is based on sort of who they are and what they are and other things in their life. And it has nothing to do with me. It's about them. Mm-hmm. And psychologically, part uh, answer two is the only thing that makes sense. Because no one <clears> – everyone – art is all about the, uh, the person who sees it. Mm-hmm. Like my opinion of the Mona Lisa has nothing to do with the Mona Lisa. It is 100% about what I bring to that painting. You know what I'm saying? And, and like it's easy for people to understand that when we talk about the Mona Lisa. Oh, yeah, of course, right? But um, most people then when they're talking about their own art or their own create, creative work, they, that goes out the window because they, they have such sort of fragile senses of self or they – for whatever reason, they have put themselves in their, in their work. Mm-hmm. And then they, they take that as a judgment of themselves when it's just not. Um, it just it, – it, and that, that's how – that's why failure or that's why rejection is so hard for most people is because they attach their sense of identity to what they've created. I don't do that or I try not to do that. I mean it's – listen, I'm not Superman. Like of course to some extent um, I, that, those two things leak together. But I've never – I've always had a pretty strong sense of self independent of the things that I create. And so it's never been hard for me to look at someone's opinion of my work as independent than me, hmm. you know, like now someone can have an opinion of me, of course, but, but that's, that's not the same thing. And so I, I think you need to, most people need to understand I am not my work. I am who I am and my work is something I do and I hope it's good and I'm going to try to make it good. And if it's not, then, uh, I need, I should, I should listen to, uh, the critiques and the criticisms and the rejections because some of them might be good. Not all of them. Mm-hmm. Most people, like, okay, uh, the reality is, um, here's a great example of, 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 of why you should listen to some rejection and, 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 or critiques and why you shouldn't listen to others. 
there's a there's a Tumblr that's called um, what is it called? It's called like bad reviews of great books or something like that. I'm getting the the name wrong, but it's like they these they went through Amazon and pulled out one star reviews of like classics, like To Kill a Mockingbird or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And they're fucking hilarious because these people are really serious. If you're writing a one star review of To Kill a Mockingbird, you have mental emotional problems that you are taking out on that book that has nothing to do with that book mm-hmm. i mean that's just the reality right and so when you see bad reviews of to kill a mockingbird it's really easy to see to realize oh wow most people in their evaluation of anything are just projecting themselves into that critique whether mm-hmm. it's good or bad actually so you don't you can't have it both ways you can't say oh I'm going to listen to the good reviews but ignore the bad reviews because the bad reviews uh, are from uh, unstable people and the good reviews are from good people. No, no, no. It doesn't work that way. Good and bad, um, both – you have to understand they're both projections of the reviewer. Mm-hmm. And then what you want to do though is you want to realize some people are pretty good at, 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 at removing themselves uh, to a large extent from their review and actually giving feedback on the work itself and other people are not. And the ones that are that are good at sort of uh, taking themselves out of it and making it less of a projection and more of an a, uh, an analytical or an analysis of the actual work, those are the ones you should listen to, especially the smart ones, right? And even, dude, sometimes haters and and, and rejectors can make really, really, really good points. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means like you need to put that in context. You know, does this all make sense? Yeah, it does. In fact, I, I guess my next question or, or sort of comment would be: It seems like this would also extend beyond just you know the work and the art we create, but into our personal lives as well. Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, so I like I do a a, a podcast uh, and it's a book's coming out. Uh, the podcast is called Mating Grounds with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Miller. He's like the leading evolutionary psychologist, and we talk to young guys a lot. Mm-hmm. One of the big pieces of advice we give to young guys is, is you need to understand what you look like to women, how you come off, not just what you look like, but how you act. Because most young guys, when they like, they'll come to us for advice and they'll be like, they'll only talk about women and they never talk about themselves. And then our, our questions are always, you know, are you in shape? How are you acting around the woman? How do you dress? How are you speaking to her? How do you approach her? It's all about them. And young guys especially don't understand they, – they kind of take themselves as a given and they don't understand that what they project out, mm-hmm. uh, both what they wear and how they act and what they say and their friends and everything, tell a story about who they are. And, and, right, and, and so they're like, oh, yeah. They, they, they have no concept of the fact that they need to look at themselves just as much as they look at women. They need to evaluate themselves. And so we tell them like – like you need to find someone who's intelligent and who you trust uh, and ask them, hey, you know, do I have bad breath? Like do I dress like a clown or do I dress reasonable? reasonable? Um, you know, how do I look? Am I, do I, if you don't know these things, ask someone. Am I in shape? Um, you know, it, do people generally find me, uh, you know, like um, a nice to be around or is there something really annoying about me that I don't know? Because people are terrible judges of themselves for the mm-hmm. most part. And so uh, you need to ask other people or if you're not emotionally intelligent enough to be able to read other people, 
uh, read wh- who you and what you are off of other people, which is not an easy thing to do. It usually takes people, especially guys, uh, decades to understand this. Then you need to ask other people and say, hey, be honest. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. And the, that's the thing is most of your friends actually know what you're doing wrong. It, it, they just don't want to tell you because it's very painful, right? Mm-hmm. And most people don't want to hear that. But if, there's a way to approach people where you can kind of get the truth out of them. And the state, that's true whether for how you act, uh, how you dress, um, uh, the, the, the work you create, whether it's art, you know, uh, business, whatever. You know, it's not, it's not super hard. You just have to have the willingness to um, face those truths and the ability to um, interact with people to get them out of them, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff there. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, 
you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Um, I want to come back to this piece and start talking about this stuff in a bit more detail, but you know, I want to ask you another question uh, about telling stories. Obviously, that is a gift that you have. And I'm really curious, you know, how you would answer the question, how do you tell great stories that resonate with people? Um, how do you tell great stories? Oh, man. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's its own episode. All right. So uh, do you want to talk about like you want to dive deep into story structure or do you want to talk more about like surface elements or, or what do you like? How, where do you want to go with that? Um, that's a good question. Let's look at the surface elements of what makes a great story. And I mean, you've clearly you've taken the material from your life and you've turned it into this incredible story. And I think that's you know what a lot of people do, and a lot of them struggle to do it. And right. so I guess that's where I'd like to go with. Well, that. most people don't tell great stories about their lives, quite honestly, because their lives are really fucking boring. <laughs> one, and one and two, uh, they aren't willing to dive deep into the emotional pain and trauma. And, um, and and tell the truths that uh, the, they're not they're not willing to uncover or speak about the, their deep truths. Um, so you don't have to have an exciting life to be a great memoirist. You just have to be willing to really get into the pain and the agony and the truth. Mm-hmm. Here, here's here's the thing: um, if you are willing to stand up and say the things that everyone thinks and no one will say then you can get really famous really fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did it, um, and there's a million other examples of people. Um, that pro- you know, I, If I look through your podcast list, I could probably name, probably half of them uh, have done something, You know, are, are people who, who are willing to stand up and tell the truth. And what will happen is you'll get, you'll get two things. You'll get a lot of people who hate you, whether they're jealous or whether they feel threatened, or whatever, and then you'll get a lot of people who think you're a hero and worship you, right? Mm. Um, so that, that that's the biggest problem with telling the, your own story as a person is that is that if you want it to be plot based, it needs to be really interesting, mm-hmm. and you've got to really like kind of um, dive deep. Actually, you know what? Uh, the second truth is true to everyone. It's both got to be interesting and you've got to be willing to tell the truth or it doesn't have to be interesting and you really are great at not just telling your truths but also articulating them mm-hmm. and sort of telling your truths in a way that other people relate to. Mm-hmm. You know, the best memoirs, uh, most of them are not actually that crazy in terms of events. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are, but most of the best ones aren't really that nuts. They're actually just written by someone who did a great job at diving deep into what they think and what they feel and telling it in a way that other people can relate to. Mm. You know, And that's telling a story is not necessarily the same thing as telling your story. Your story needs to be about, uh, about truth and honesty and emotional vulnerability. That actually is, is the other thing. Um, a, a story, like a fiction, like a novel or a plot, is far more about story structure and understanding there has to be a conflict and you know those sorts of things, which is mm-hmm. just about story structure. You know? Right. So what would you say your painful truth is? Um, 
I don't know if there's one actually. I think <laughs> there's a few. See that you know that's funny. A lot of people think people who don't read my stuff think that my stuff is just stories of sex and drinking and just craziness and that's it, right? Yeah. The people who actually read my stuff uh, don't think that at all. Uh, the ones who love my stuff because they read it love it because. There are definitely stories of drinking and sex and craziness, and and they're really funny and they're enjoyable. But there's a lot of emotional truth in my stories, and it's it's second and third layer. It's not the first layer, mm-hmm. but um, any, anyone who who will read my stuff will tell you that that's what they love about the book the most is how honest it is. Uh, and you know what's funny, man, is that I didn't even. I wish I could sit here and tell you, oh, yeah, of course, I'm such a genius that when I wrote my book, I realized I put these three different levels of meaning in. A bo- no, of course not. All I did when I wrote, I kind of had this heuristic in my mind. Uh, when I got to a, po- a point and, and I was thinking, what do I say next? Um, then the answer is always exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Right? And so it doesn't mean that I created like some forensic account of every single, every single thing that happened every night because that's super boring. No one gives a shit about that. Uh, I, 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 well, actually, I would write it out like that and then I would cut out all the boring parts and then I was left with either the interesting things, the funny things, or the emotionally impactful, meaningful things, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think the fund- – to answer your question, uh, the fundamental sort of meaningful – uh, truth in my stories is that even though I was living a life that a lot of people wish they could live and idealize and sort of create fantasies about, the underlying reality is is that I was doing it um, to escape a lot of uh, emotional pain and a lot of um, uh, negative things that I didn't want to face in my own life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, like the. There's nothing wrong with having uh, sex or having a lot of sex with a lot of different people, but all promiscuous behavior, male, female, whatever, however promiscuous is defined, because promiscuous can be defined different ways in different cultures, but if it is truly promiscuous, it's always about trying to run away or escape from an emotional pain you don't want to face. Same as drugs, dude. Mm-hmm. Like any sort of any, – there's a million ways to escape emotional pain. Drugs are one – uh, you know, uh, uh, gambling, um, uh, working out, drinking, hooking up, uh, uh, dude, start, fuck man, most startup people, like most people, if people who are working 80 hours a week are mm-hmm. doing it because they have something else in their life they don't want to face. Yeah. You know, hmm. I mean like that's, that's the reality. And so I think the, the emotional truth in my stories is, uh, I was both, this awesome, amazing, hilarious dude who was also um, fucked up in a lot of ways and sad in a lot of ways and, like, didn't want to face any of it. So instead, he had a bunch of fun and did all these things. But at the same time, that that's the thing is that there's, like, this nod and a wink in all my stories where I kind of recognize, hey, look, um, I'm – I'm fucked up and this is fucked up and I know it, but it's working for me right now. And so I'm just going to keep doing it. You know, does that make sense to you? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much there that that's why I didn't want to stop you. Um, Let me ask you this on that note Uh, in this, this crazy journey of yours, have you had any sort of just rock bottom, you know, dark night of the soul moments? 
Um, I mean, dude, everyone has, you know, it's like, I, I don't have any crazy, like Russell brand stories where like I wake up with like, like needles in my arms and like, you know, eight hookers around and all that kind of, I was never, I, I was never like that type of destructive. Mm-hmm. My destructive was more, um, it was just a different sort. It was almost like, uh, I, I kind of, um, I, I, in one of my books, I make a distinction between two types of guys that party. There's the, there's the, the Coke and hookers guys and the beer and hot girls guys. And the Coke and hookers guys are like, that's like Charlie Sheen, mm-hmm. right? Those are the guys who like are really fucked up and destructive and like they don't give a shit about themselves or anyone else. And it's like, you know, like they do destructive drugs and they do like, like not just, hook up with a lot of women, but do it in a very awful, toxic, destructive way. And, and, and I think those are the kind of the party guys that get a lot of attention, but that's actually not the majority of guys. I think most guys are, uh, are beer and hot girls guys, which is those are the type of guys who like um, they have emotional issues, but they don't know how to deal with them or where to deal with them. And, and, and they, they use drinking and sex and hooking up as a way – not necessarily to bury it, but like um, they, they do it in a joyful way. They try and get rid of their pain in a joyful way, whereas the Coke and hookers guys get try and get rid of their pain in a toxic, mean, um, sort of negative way, if that makes any sense. And so I was definitely like a beer and hot, and hot girls guy. Like I don't, I don't, you know, do crazy drugs. I don't, you know, uh, I try to avoid, you know, toxic women. I don't, you know, buy hookers or any of that nonsense. Like, and so my dark moments, they're not dark in the archetypical way. You know, it's not like I, you know, I woke up one day like with my car wrapped around a tree and like, you know, I don't have any of those stories because I wasn't that sort of destructive. I didn't hurt other people, you know, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, I, I'm sure there's plenty of girls who, who I hurt, but it was never on purpose. It was like, I'm just a stupid 27 year old and I don't know what the hell I'm doing, that sort of thing. And so my dark moments are more like, um, they're more like opportunities missed, you know, yeah. like, uh. Um, I, like, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I feel like, like I said earlier, like I should be worth 50 million mm-hmm. and, and it's not just money. Like I, there's at least, I, don't get me wrong. I, I have a, a, a girlfriend now and she's amazing and we're very serious and, and I love her very deeply, but, um, she's not the only amazing woman I've met in my life. You know, uh, she might be the, you know, the most amazing or the one that's right for me now, but the reality is I've met at least three or four other women in my life who, I could have easily, um, if I had had my shit together emotionally, I could have married and had an amazing life with, you know, mm-hmm. and I, and I miss those opportunities and it, it doesn't like, it doesn't mean like everything's lost. Like I might be in the best position ever for me now, or I might not, I don't know. But like, even, even if I am in the best position ever, losing something great is still painful, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so those, my dark moments are more like, um, I don't want to call them Disney dark moments because they're sure. serious, right? But they're not like they're not melodramatic, and they're not they're not movie scenes. They're more like um, lost opportunities, you know, mm-hmm. or friendships that are lost, or potential relationships, or things like that. Like I've I've done a lot of really stupid things that that hurt other people, but probably really hurt me more than them. But they're not major dramatic things, you know. Mm-hmm. They're just they're just 
I don't want to say run of the mill, but they're, they're just kind of basic loneliness and sadness, which doesn't make them less impactful. It just means they're less dramatic, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Well, actually, that makes a, a perfect setup uh, to kind of get into what I want to get into next. I mean, you know, I had a chance to have dinner with you, and I remember thinking, I was like, because all I knew about was just the reputation that I had heard from the handful of things that I met, you know, that I had read online. And what was surprising was the contrast of you being this incredibly empathetic person and just, you know, being somebody who I could actually sit down with and talk about things that I was going through. And being very shocked by that. And so I guess really what I'd love for you to talk about is sort of the evolution out of, you know, that person. Cause I know you've written about this where you said you're not that person anymore and how that's led you guys to, you know, the work that you're up to now and, and kind of where you're taking all of it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, it's a long topic. So basically, uh, you know, honestly, man, it just, it, it came down. I, Here's the thing. I think my journey is very, very similar to a lot, lot of guys. The only difference between my journey and their journey is that mine happened to be a little bit more public and that um, all the crazy, ridiculous sort of things that I did in my 20s were sort of public record, right? Mm -hmm. And so like – but I don't think my journey is that different than than many, many other people. Look, the reality is I had – my parents were not bad people, but they were just really bad at being parents, you know? And so I had a very lonely, um, emotionally traumatic childhood. Like nobody hit me. I wasn't sexually abused. There was nothing like that. But I just had parents who like were just were not very good at being parents. They didn't pay. Most of their attention was on themselves. Uh, they didn't do a really good job of uh, of the one thing that you have to do to be a good parent, which is sort of unconditionally loving your child and giving them that sort of unconditional um, sort of acceptance and, and and soft place to land, right? And they weren't bad people by any stretch of the imagination. They're just really shitty about ca- they were they were really shitty at caring for other people, and that included their child, right? And so. Um, that left a bill to be paid and I had to pay it, right? And, and, and so they just created like a dude, me, who had various emotional issues, not major ones, you know, like I wasn't burning anything down. I wasn't robbing stores. I just, you know, I would just had emotional issues and I didn't know where to put them. And so they went into crazy behavior in my 20s that most guys do. I went a little bit further than most guys, but still not that far, really. And, um, and so like... Um, uh, you know, I, I, um, I, sometime in my, it, it, they carried on a little longer with me because I was making money at it. It kind of became my thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, <clears throat> at some point, you get tired of that. You know, um, almost every guy does. And if you don't, I don't know. I don't know what to say. But every, pretty much every guy I know, at some point, gets tired of drinking, hooking up, partying all the time because that's really fun for a short period and really tedious. Uh, after a while because what you understand is why so why does it get tedious it gets tedious because it is ultimately meaningless and it's ultimately a distraction so think of it like eating junk food like junk food is uh really delicious junk food is designed to override every sort of body system with its deliciousness it's it's that's how it is it's a perfect combination of salt sugar fat right and so it's a, it, like it, it kind of freaks our bodies out. But even if you eat junk food long enough, 
you get sick of it and you want to go do something else, something that that is more meaningful and uh, something that's going to leave you feeling better. And that's the position I got to. And I kind of just realized, even though I'd done all these crazy things, I didn't have the relationships in my life, the intimate emotional relationships in my life I wanted. I had great friends and I had good relationships with my friends. But, I mean, different girls every night is one of those things where it sounds great at 19. And it kind of is for a little while. Like, Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong. But at 29, it starts to get a little old. And at 33, it's really, really old, you know, Mm -hmm. because – <clears throat> different girl every night means, or whatever, different girl every week, different girl every month means that you don't, um, you don't have anyone to share your life with, and you don't have anyone to have a real relationship with. And um, if you know, understand humans, you understand the two things that matter to humans are the relationship to our brains and our biology and ourselves and our souls, like both empirically and anecdotally. There's only two things that matter to humans: uh, the relationships we have with the people we love. And the work that we do that matters to other people. And I was already doing work that mattered to other people. Um, but I didn't have the, the deep, in-depth, and emotionally intimate relationships. And I kind of fixed everything in my life externally. You know, like I got in great shape. Uh, you know, that was a while ago in my early, early 30s. Got in great shape and I, you know, like uh, money's great and, you know, like stopped, you know, dating awful women, started dating good women and all these sort of things. And I still couldn't have what I wanted. And so I kind of realized, you know what, if if everything is right externally and and I can't get what I want, then pro- the, the problem is probably me. And so um, I just, I realized, you know, I need help. I need, so- I need someone to help me with my emotions and my uh, internal life. And so I started psychoanalysis. I mean, there's a, it's just a type of talk therapy. There's mm-hmm. a tons of different types of talk therapy. Um, you know, meditation works. There's a lot of ways to help yourself. Uh, but um, I, I, I chose psychoanalysis um, and I actually added meditation last year. And I've been meditating, combined the two. They're really, really good, effective together. And, um, and it just taught me a lot about myself and a lot about why I was doing what I was doing. And I kind of... Um, I, I I looked at the sort of holes in my soul and the traumas and where they came from, and I sort of began. I'm still on this path, so I don't want to be like I don't act like everything's done. I'm perfect now because I'm not. But the process is like understanding. Okay, the, why am I acting the way I'm acting? Where does this come? Well, it's to fill this need. What need is it? Where does the need come from? And then you kind of have to realize. Oh, like okay. So I'll give you a speci- specific example in my life. Um, my parents were uh, gave me no guidance, you know, not really good or bad, just very little at all, right? And 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 that's kind of a a, a, a deep ingrained need in children <clears throat> is for parental um, or some sort of older guidance, right? I didn't have an older brother, I didn't really have grandparents, uh, I had kind of no one in my life who gave me guidance. And it's funny, on one hand, it's been it's really served me well because that forced me to become independent. And, and, and it's really helped me become an entrepreneur. And there's a reason that I created my own literary genre and I've invented all these things and I was the first to do all these things is because I'm used to being independent in my life, right? And so that's good. But on the other hand, the negative is there's always been that hole in my soul where I've always wanted like a mentor or a father or a mother or somebody to not tell me what to do but help me understand what I'm doing and someone to go to with problems. I've never really had that, right? And so um, part of what I went through in analysis was not just intellectually recognizing that fact, 
but emotionally connecting with that feeling and, and seeing how it played out in other parts of my life and realizing, wow, like I'm, I've ruined relationships with other people in my life because I was unconsciously playing this need out and I didn't realize what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And so then once you realize it, then you can, what happens is that the, the pain never really goes away. But once you recognize the pain and you recognize where it comes from, then it's really easy to deal with. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it, think about it this way. This is like kind of a weird metaphor, but it really works. The monster under your bed is really big and ferocious, except or up until you actually look under your bed with a flashlight and realize like it's a stuffed animal, mm-hmm. you know, or or even that there's nothing there. And you may think as a kid, like, uh, well, the monster's still there, but you look under there and you realize, all right, it's not there, or it's just a stuffed animal, or it's just shadows. It's just, it's something that has a form and a shape. Now I can deal with it, right? Um, the only emotions, man, that really cripple people are the ones that you refuse to accept or acknowledge. The ones that you accept or acknowledge, even the really painful ones, <laughs> are ones you can deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, I guess, my journey was I had to... I had to recognize and bring up all the things I was running from and, um, and acknowledge them. And I'm still in the process of this. But uh, uh, then it becomes really easy to like kind of stop. It becomes really easy to stop doing all the things you were doing to run from your emotions and your pain. And now, like, it, dude, my life is, you know, I have, I have all these, this, I have a, a depth and quality of close, intimate, uh, relationships that I didn't have before and I wasn't able to because um, I wasn't engaged with those emotions. And now that I am, it's like, like, like the woman I'm with now, she would never have dated the 33 year old me ever, mm-hmm. you know, ever. And, and not because she didn't think that dude was awesome, but because she would have said, Oh, you're going to be great when you figure your, your stuff out, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I, I don't, I'm not done, but I'm at least at the process where it's like, um, I, I'm, I'm a much more functional person. Mm-hmm. Does this all make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting you bring up top talk therapy and, and, you know, doing this kind of work because I think there's such a cultural <laughs> stigma against doing things like going to talk to a therapist. It's kind of like, I mean, for the long, especially, you know, growing up Indian, the only message I got was, oh, that's for crazy people. You don't talk to therapists unless you're insane. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's our parents, <clears throat> our parents' generation, definitely our grandparents' generation, were like uh, shrink. I mean, think about what they call psychologists shrinks. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it, it, it to them, getting help was a sign of weakness and instability. And I, I think that's changing. And um, that's another thing where I, I, it's not that judgment doesn't affect me or that um, other people's opinions don't affect me. It's just that because I, I think that's one of the benefits of having shitty parents actually <laughs> is that I learned to rely on myself from an early age. Mm-hmm. So um, like everything has a good and a bad, you know, there, there's two sides to everything. And so like, it's funny, the fact that they were so shitty as parents is what enabled me to, to start uh, psychoanalysis and not worry about judgment or, or, or not let that stop me. Uh, but the reason I had to do it is because they were so shitty, you know, (laughs) it's like they gave me the problem and the solution. Uh You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah, dude, but I think that's absolutely changing. Uh, and I think it's fantastic that, um, that, that, that young people, uh, like people like us and even people younger, not only do do they not look at that as bad, people are like, oh yeah, I, I need, I had a problem. 
I needed to get it to get it fixed and I got it fixed and now I feel better, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Let me ask you this. You know, you mentioned not having uh, sort of a father figure, or a mentor, and, and this is just out of curiosity. You think that's why you take an interest in people like Charlie and, and Ryan Holiday the way you have and, and mentored and brought them up? I mean, because, you know, in of a course. lot of ways, they, they you know, credit you, uh, you know, for, for grooming them to where they're yeah. at. Of course, dude. I mean, that's, that's one of the ways, that's one of the best ways to solve a problem is to give away what you never had, like, mm-hmm. or to fill a hole. Uh, like, whatever hole you had, like, if if you're a girl who, whose daddy didn't pay attention, or if you're a guy whose uh, mom was never around, or whatever, whatever it is, right? Um, one of the best best ways to to not the only way, but one of the one of the things you should do to help yourself is give away what you didn't have. Because you, here's the thing: you can't ever get what you didn't have. The past can't change, but you can help. Uh, you can help alleviate your own pain and deal with your own pain by helping other people like mm-hmm. that's not just like uh <clears throat> um uh, that's not just a uh, like um new age uh or like altruistic startup bullshit that's actually psychologically true like empirical study after empirical study shows one of the absolute best ways to get over trauma is to help traumatize people who are traumatized in the same way you are mm. um now there's ways that can go wrong obviously i mean don't get me wrong but um but it's really really effective there's a reason that um that most drug counselors are ex addicts right you know i mean because it doesn't just help the person the the counselee it also helps the counselor i mean you know the saying um uh i teach in order to learn you know well mm-hmm. i help in order to be helped is a saying that that is not like that well known, but is very, very, very true. Um, so yeah, dude, of course, like I, I, there's absolutely unequivocally no doubt that one of the reasons I like helping a guy, especially young sort of directionless fatherless type guys is because I didn't, I know what it's like to be in that position and I know what it's like to not have any help and I know how fucking terrible that feels and it's really rewarding to me to be able to give to them something I didn't have. Because mm-hmm. I'm never going to have that, but I do have the ability to make sure that they don't have to have that, you know? Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, I, I know we're getting close to in about an hour, so I get uh, two more final questions. So talk to me about how that is, all of this has led to you know, the work you're doing now that you mentioned around you know, evolutionary psychology and mating, because I know that that's sort of your next big project, and I'd be, I'm sure we'll probably have to do an entire episode just on that. So just give us sort of the surface-level stuff. Yeah, so uh, well, that book's not coming out for a year, so we've got plenty of time to, to, to get to that. So basically, here's the thing. I, I think that... Um, Think about this. In our schools and our educational systems, we don't teach anything at all about relationships or about sex or about dating, not to women or to men. And there's actually nothing more important to humans than social and, and intimate relationships. And it's, it's, it's crazy to think about. Like literally the most human, human beings are social apes. Our entire existence is defined by our relationships to other people. And I mean that literally. You raise a human in a closet and it's not a human being, right? Humans don't exist without other humans. And we don't teach anyone in any institutional uh, sort of um, 
uh, like uh, authoritative way anything about this, and it makes no sense at all. And I think the group that is the most left out, both both uh, from institutional help and just colloquial sort of social help, are, are young guys. Uh, like, there's a lot of dating and sex advice for women. A lot of it's bad, but there's at least something, and some of it's good. There's basically nothing for men at all. There's mm-hmm. there's sort of like uh, you know like the the nonsense, the sort of passed down social wisdom your parents tell you, which is just nonsense because like like what, what old people have their own agendas and they grew up in a different uh, sort of era. And then there's what else is there? Pickup artists? I mean, be serious, man. Yes. Like these dudes are sociopaths and and autistics. Like and they don't know what they're they're talking about. It's really shameful. So uh, I actually had this conversation with Jeff Miller a few years ago. He's um, one, like, one of the leading evolutionary psychologists in the world. He wrote Mating Mind and a, bu- a bunch of other books. Like all the ideas that, that a lot of people have about sex and dating and all the stuff you read about in all these magazines, he's the one who did the research. Mm-hmm. And so um, we, we were like, well, like basically we had this discussion and we thought, well, who's more well-equipped to write the definitive book about sex and dating and relationships for guys than he and I. He's done the research and I live the life, right? Mm-hmm. And and so it's like so we kind of got together and said let's 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 lay this out, you know? And the most important thing is we don't just want to this isn't about teaching guys how to get laid. Mm-hmm. Although getting laid is a perfectly fine goal if you're a young guy. What we're trying to teach guys is how to understand women how to understand relationships, both short-term, medium-term, or long-term, and how to understand like what women look for, what, how sexual relationships work, how they develop, how they develop, how you get into them, like all the, these fundamental, basic tenets of um, of life that guys have to learn uh, on their own through trial and error, or through what their friends say, or through whatever, through porn or pick up artist nonsense and all of it teaches most of it teaches really awful fucked up stuff which is why uh most guys men and women have so much trouble getting together and so much trouble doing anything effective together when they are together you Mm -hmm. know and um and so we have a a podcast it's called the mating grounds and it's been doing fantastic i think i don't know what we've done half a million or a million downloads in um in like three months or Mm -hmm. i think it's been up or it's in its third third fourth month and um Book comes out next year, uh, I think in, uh, next fall or something. Um, right, and we're hoping it becomes, if we do it right, and so far, like, it, it looks like we're doing a pretty good job. If we do it right, it'll be the def- sort of like the definitive resource for guys, especially young guys, but not just young guys, just for any guy. Um, almost like the, the not, the, not the dictionary, the, more like the, the, the reference guide. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's where you start, right, uh, to understand women and sex and dating. Awesome. So two more questions and we'll wrap things up. You know, I rarely do a ton of research uh, on the people that I interview, but I dug through some of your stuff and I came across a quote that I wanted to bring up on the air and have you reflect on a little bit. Uh, You said before you become rich and famous and all that bullshit, you have an image of what it will all be like. Then you get there and it's nothing like that. Some parts are better, some are worse, but it's also different. I'm not sure how to describe this to someone who hasn't been through it. Even though you know it's a ridiculous notion, part of you still assumes all the problems you have when you're poor, a poor nobody, will vanish when you become a rich someone. Yep. Yeah, it's true. So <laughs> tell me about that in a bit more detail. Just, you know, what, what, do, we, what do we need to take away from that? Um, 
Uh, I'll tell you, so, so your podcast is geared to people who are trying to like kind of go from uh, nothing to something or from something small to something big. Um, what you should take from that quote is when you reach your goal, you're not going to have what you think you're going to have. Hmm. You know, it, it doesn't mean it's a bad goal. It doesn't mean you should stop. But most people uh, want to be famous uh, or want to do something um, for they, they rationalize in their head what the goal is. They think it's, oh, yeah, it's for these three reasons. It's never for those three reasons. It's unconsciously because they think being famous or having a popular blog or writing this book or uh, starting this company are going to solve their emotional uh, issues or their emotional pain. Everyone thinks that. And anyone who says that, that's true is either lying or they don't know themselves very well because it was a hundred percent true for me. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it doesn't even mean you can't have good reasons. Like there, there, there might be, there usually are very good reasons for doing these things. And those reasons, um, almost certainly are valid, but, and I'm not even saying that they, they aren't, they don't sit alongside. They, they probably, you know, even if you do have good reasons, like you want to start a, a company to connect the world, whatever, blah, 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 like uh, a new social network. It's a blah, okay, fine. But they, you might have the best reasons on earth, but they still sit next to these other reasons that you aren't recognizing to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't go through with your goal. You absolutely should. But you should also take time to understand what other deep internal unconscious issues are you trying to resolve through this other thing and then maybe try and face those head on. Yeah. Uh, you know, at, at the same time, because if you, here's what's crazy. If you do that, then when you reach your goal, the goal will be much sweeter. And, and you, first off, you'll probably be better, uh, at reaching your goal. You'll probably do more with it. Uh, you'll be more effective. And then also, it'll be much sweeter because you won't have this dis, this disillusionment. Even if it's unconscious, I can't tell you, uh, Dude, how many times I, I've coached either authors or startup uh, entrepreneur people and they'll hit you know bestseller list or they'll hit something and they get this huge rush and this spike and everything's amazing and then they kind of crash afterwards, whether it's the next week or the next year or whatever because it's like they still have the same problems, man. They're just – if they got rich – it's just the same problems with a lot more money around them and a lot more consequences. Or if they got famous, it's the same problems except uh, now a bunch of a lot more people are judging them than before. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I learned that lesson the hard way. Yeah, dude. It's we all do, man. I I say this, and I'm not sure how many people. That's one of those problems that you kind of have to go through, I think, to understand. Mm-hmm. Just the best thing you can do is file that quote away, and then whenever you hit the goal, you think that you need to hit to make you happy and you're not happy, come back to that quote and then you'll understand. And then you can start your journey to figure out the other things as well. Mm. Right. Yeah. Well, Tucker, this has been just brilliant. So I want to close with my final question, which is how we close all our interviews here at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, that's a good question. How, how do you make yourself unmistakable? Uh, you mean in a branding like way or what? In however way you want to interpret it. All right, so um, I, I'll I'll interpret it a little bit separately because um, I'll interpret it as unmistakable as being the equivalent of remarkable, 
right? And so, which isn't necessarily the exact same thing, but I think they're very close. So if you want to be remarkable, the best thing you can do is don't worry about being original, worrying about being really authentic and really vulnerable and really getting to the deep, honest truths that you're afraid of. Because chances, we're all human beings. And if you're afraid of this truth, my guess is there are millions of other people who are just as afraid as, as you are. And if you get up and say it, then they are going to love you because you had the courage to say what they were trying to say themselves. And you, you gave voice to something in them that was important to them. That's how you make yourself remarkable or unmistakable. And if you can do that, you can have a long, productive career in any creative endeavor. Amazing. Well, uh, Tucker, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights with our <laughs> listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. I mean, this has just been full of brilliant nuggets and, and gems. We'll link up all the resources that Tucker has mentioned in the show notes. I'm going to be subscribing to your podcast now because I'm really curious about all the things that you're doing. Uh, so on that note, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and we'll close the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.